This morning, we are going to be going back into the letter to the Colossian church. If you brought your Bible, great opportunity now to open it up and go find Colossians. If you are one of the children's church age kids, go grab your binder and start to do some of the activity sheets in your binder. And if you were like my kids who started this an hour ago, you're probably done your pages. So sit and listen. Make sure if you take your completed pages after the service to Julia, she's probably over in the fellowship room, she might give you a prize for completing your pages. Now we sure didn't have that when I was a kid in church. That would have been a good time, hey? So go get some prizes after, complete your pages. I think that's that. This morning, as we dabble into Thanksgiving, I was doing my devotions this morning in Job. That is quite the swing of emotions in one day. Here's what you learn, though. Getting ready to celebrate Thanksgiving Sunday by looking at Job reinforces something to you very clearly. It was something we were going to talk about this morning already. And that is thankfulness. Thankfulness is not connected to your circumstances. When thankfulness isn't connected to it and attached to it, then regardless of your circumstances, you can remain thankful. I was seeing this as I was reading through Paul's letter to the Colossian church, but boy, do you see it when Satan is looking for someone to go after, and God says, what about him? What about the faithful one? Job loves me with his heart. He won't turn his face away from me. What about him? And the accuser, Satan goes after him. And what does he go after? He goes after his circumstances, goes after his sheep and his donkeys, and goes after his camels, and then eventually goes after his own children. And it talks about how much Job had. And as he lost, and he lost, and he lost, where does his hope lie? Because if it relies on all of that stuff, if it rests on all of that stuff, then he's a crushed man. And yet, you get to the end of chapter one, and he says, God gives us. God takes away from us. But blessed be God. God is not changing even though my circumstances are falling out from beneath me. So Satan asks for a second crack at Job. Let me go after him personally. Let me go after his flesh and his bones. Let me go after his life. Surely a man can survive his outward circumstances changing, but his inward ones? And God says you can have his body, you can have his bones, don't touch his life. Satan goes after his body and his health begins to fail. And yet you get to the end of chapter 2. Job has not lost his hope. He has still not cursed the name of God. Because his thankfulness is attached to his relationship with the Blessed One, with the Father in Heaven. This is going to be key as we go into Colossians because this Thanksgiving, just as we were building on last week, if our hope is built on the wrong foundation, then the second that foundation is challenged, the second it begins to crumble and fall apart, then the house falls over. So if we, you know, if we pass the mic around this morning and our thankfulness is circumstantial and circumstantial, then the second the circumstances change, 
We thank God for good health, and the second we lose it, what are we thankful for? What if we can be thankful in any circumstance? Because we are Christ's in every circumstance. Verse 22. Last week as we were going through verses 21, 22, and 23, take a look if you're in Colossians. We talked about the problem, the solution, and the condition. 21, the problem. We are hostile in mind towards God. We are alienated from him. The solution, he reconciles us and presents us holy and blameless and above reproach. And the condition, if we've remained stable and steadfast in our faith. But what you might not notice when you're reading through verse 22 is who is doing this presenting of you? This is a different way of thinking about it. You see, he, that's Jesus, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. You have to start to imagine this. Paul is explaining it to this church in a way that they could see themselves being before God and it's actually Jesus that is bringing them in. He's making a presentation to his father and he is showing the holiness and the blamelessness that he's developed in his bride, in his body. We are in Christ and we are Christ's. In the Ephesian letter, you're going to see that Paul writes to the church and says that the spirit of God has been placed inside of you. It is a mark, it is this seal, this guarantee of your inheritance of heaven. God hasn't just extended grace to you, but he has placed himself within you. So now, you're not just a follower of a different king in a different kingdom. You are in him, you are part of his body, you are knit together with him. You are in him and he is over you. So what does this call us to? This calls us to hope that is greater than ourselves. This calls us to a life of obedience, following the one who has purchased us. And Paul is going to explain in the next few verses that maturity in our faith and understanding the mystery and the secret of God dwelling within these people might be the greatest mystery that's been hidden for ages and ages. And it's a reason to rejoice even in our suffering. A lot of that to say we should read some scripture together. We're going to start at verse 24. We're going to read through to the end of chapter 1. We're going to go into chapter 2 and we're going to read the first five verses. Okay? Then we're going to go back to the beginning. I'm going to tell you what I think clearly is the theme of these verses for us to watch for, and then we're going to go through them verse by verse. So if you have your Bible open, we're starting at verse 24. I'm reading out of the ESV. This is what Paul says to the Colossian church. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. There's a lot going on here. But what I think unites this passage into one story that we can read and clearly make sense, the lens which we should decipher this with, is that a mature Christian understands that at the foundational level, we are in Christ, we are his. I think as you read through this, you need to be thinking about this, right? Paul is writing to a church that is being pressed with a false gospel, with the idea that righteousness can actually come out of this false wisdom that you believe or this fake humility that you live out or religious attention to the law of the Old Testament. Christians still do this today. We attach our religious practices to our righteousness. Like the good things that we do are storing up points for us with him that one day he'll love us and accept us because if we just do enough, and then when we start to fail at what we're doing, we feel this incredible shame because we're not doing good enough for him. What if we are in him and he is in us? What if we're his regardless of the way that we live out our discipleship. What if you don't belong to you anymore? What if you've come off the throne of your own heart and now he is the king, resting on the throne, directing your steps? So let's think about that. That's a lot to think about. Let's think about that as we read through these verses. And let's see if Thanksgiving is gonna pop out of what Paul is writing to the Colossians today. Verse 24 might be the most interesting out of all of these. Why? Because he's thankful for suffering. There wasn't a lot of people that, when we were passing the mic around, stood up and said, what I'm really thankful for this morning is how hard my life has been lately. This is not common. But Paul knows that he is suffering because he is making the word of God fully known. Do you understand this mystery and secret that's been missed for ages? And Paul is living that out faithfully. So he rejoices in his suffering because he's building up, he's storing up what's lacking in the body in the church. He will gladly suffer and rejoice in his chains 
If it means that he fulfills the assignment, the stewardship that God has given to him. What stands out the most to me is the second half of verse 25. That it's a stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Do you understand? He's living out what Jesus has called him to. When God revealed himself, when Jesus appeared to Paul and it changed his life forever, he knew that God's gift to him, the stewardship to him, is to make the word of God fully known. He took a Pharisee. Don't forget who he is. He took someone who memorized the Old Testament from a young age, and he takes him and reveals to him that you've been reading it wrong. You read the story of Abraham, that he was going to be the father of many nations, and the whole world would be blessed through him, that great promise Maybe you were reading it wrong. You saw Moses, the great deliverer, deliver the people out, and you were waiting for Messiah to come and deliver again. But maybe you were reading it wrong. Maybe there was this secret, this mystery in it that you were missing. You were waiting for Joshua, the next conqueror, the Messiah to come and knock some walls down, to go into Rome, walk around the city a few times. The walls come tumbling down. Maybe you were thinking about it wrong. You were waiting for another king. King David. You were waiting for another king to arrive. He was going to rule and reign. And you'd experience peace and freedom from your enemies. Just like him back in the good old days. Maybe you were reading it wrong. Maybe there's this secret in it that you weren't seeing for ages and ages and ages. What if Jesus revealed this to Paul? That it's actually Jesus the Messiah who's going to fill people. He's going to knit them together into his body. And that's how he's going to make peace with humanity. That's how he's going to rule over them. That's how he's going to deliver them from evil and from sin. That's how he's going to bless the entire world. What if all of those promises, what if those covenants are coming true in a different and unique way? And Jesus says to Paul, Paul, the whole world needs to know. He goes, that's easy. The Jews will see this coming, won't they? He goes, no, Paul, you're not going to them. You're going to the people who don't know anything about me, who don't worship me. You're going into the Gentile cities. They worship these statues and these idols and this wisdom and this philosophy. You're going to go to them. And you're going to show them that I'm going to fill them. I'm going to rule over them. I'm going to reign in them. I'm going to deliver them and I'm going to bless them. Can you reveal this secret to them? So Paul, sitting in his jail cell, he's got Timothy sitting beside him, and he's, Timothy, write all this down. You've got to go tell this church. And Paul is sitting there saying, I'm rejoicing because I'm doing exactly what God asked me to do. Exactly what God asked him to do. Thankfulness is not attached to his circumstances. So he can be thankful in any circumstance. I love that so much. Look at verses 26 and 27, the heart of this passage. He talks about the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, now revealed. Now it's clear. 
and he chose to make known how great among the Gentiles is the glory of this hope. How bizarre is that? He went to the children who were outside of the family to reveal how good of a father he is by welcoming them into the family. He says, I pick you. You didn't used to be part of my family, but I'm going to be your father now. Come home. I am yours and you belong to me. You will follow me now. We are in Christ. He becomes the foundation of our lives. And that's this hope that we hold on to. That last part, verse 27, maybe the most famous verse in all of Colossians. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. It's Christ in you. That's the hope of future glory. That's it. The indwelling by the king inside of you. That's hope. That, if you keep your eyes on that, that will get you through any storm. Any storm. That means you can step into Job's, Job's situation, right? He can lose everything around him. And yet his hope isn't in the life that he's built for himself. His hope is in the Father in heaven. His hope is in Yahweh the God of Israel, his hope is in future glory. So when everything else falls away, his hope remains. That is the posture of a mature Christian. But so often, I see examples of churches who are missing that, and that makes me incredibly sad. And our church is not perfect, trust me. I'm the teacher I know exactly how far this guy has to go. I want to turn the focus and aim it at maturity. A healthy church is a church that is looking for the transformation of Jesus in people's lives. That, my friends, we're aiming towards maturity. Some churches count how many people sit in the seats and they gauge it as success. Some people count numbers in all sorts of different ways. What does Paul say in verses 28 and 29? Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. Why does he do that? Why is he rejoicing in his chains for the chance to make the word of God fully known? That we may present everyone, what does it say? Mature in Christ that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. A mature church. Not how many people are in the room, but how deep the faith goes. Again, because if we're building homes on weak foundations, then the second the storm comes, it's over. It's over. And they lived in a world where the storm came all the time. And you and I don't live in that world. At least it doesn't feel like that all the time. You could die for being a Christian in their world. You could lose your profession for being a Christian. Get kicked out of the trades in their world. Rome is in charge. They burned Christians. And he is telling them that their hope is found in Jesus because Jesus is inside of them. 
Because you belong to him now. You are Christ's. These people were desperate for hope. Are you desperate for hope? Not desperate for it. Not like it's a beautiful addition on, on top of what we already have in our life. Are you desperate for it? Because if you're desperate for it, then this is an oasis in a dry land. This is salvation song. This, this is a victory message if you're desperate for hope. For someone who could die for their faith, end up in jail just like Paul. For him to make clear to them that our hope in future glory is the fact that Christ is dwelling in us and we belong to him now. This would have been life-changing. And a mature Christian would understand that. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, are Paul just further explaining exactly what he's saying. I love that there's moments when it gets revealed how much of a pastor he really is. He talks about wanting to see this church and the church in Laodicea. That's just a town up the road from Colossae. He says, I've never even seen you in person, but I'm with you in spirit. But what's he thankful for? He's thankful for their hearts to be encouraged, for them being knit together in love, and for them to reach, this is an intense sentence, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He says, I know I'm not with you in person. I am with you in spirit. I'm rejoicing to see your good order and your firmness in your faith. Maturity. Remember last week's sermon? The problem, the solution, and the condition. The problem is our broken state. The solution is the reuniting, the reconciling that takes place by Jesus' death on the cross. And what's the condition? We need to continue in that faith. Stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That means when we enter into the storms of our lives, is our faith being tossed around or is it the one stable thing when everything else isn't stable? When I think about that, I think about a few stories in the Old Testament. I think about Elisha and his servant. I think about King Jehoshaphat. These are famous stories that reveal that when your eyes are on God, you can weather the storm. Take a look first. Verse 12 here from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This is King Jehoshaphat. He's getting attacked by Moabites and Ammonites. A vast army that they can't defeat on their own. And he is the king of Judah. God's people. The nation at this point is already broken apart. And the king doesn't know what to do. The storm surrounding him is devastating. And he prays this beautiful prayer that you can read in chapter 20. And he says in verse 12, O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. 
hear that? We don't know what to do. But in this storm, our eyes are on you. Not on how strong our army is. Not on what kind of maneuver and strategy we can use to try to get out of this mess. We're not getting out of this storm without you. So our eyes are on you. What about Elisha? Second Kings chapter six. The king of Assyria, the king of Syria, Assyria comes later. The king of Syria is attacking. He's attacking Israel. And they found out that this man of God was whispering to the king of Israel and giving them victory. So they need to go after the man of God. So the king of Syria takes his army, finds out what town Elisha lives in, and it's Dothan. And he took the army and surrounded it. It says in verse 14, he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night. They surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city And the servant asked, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then this verse that's up on the screen, verse 17. Then Elisha prays this prayer. He says, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, there's horses and chariots of fire all around. Like, I love these stories because here's this man of God and he's beside this younger Christian, it seems, like this younger follower. And he's panicking and he's saying, Elisha, there's a storm all around the city. There's a storm. What are we going to do? And Elisha says, open your eyes. Open your eyes and see. Look at the one who is beyond the storm. He's not shaken by this army. Look at him. God, would you just open his eyes so that he could see you? Could you open his eyes? God goes, "Mm mm-hmm. Let your eyes be open." And all of a sudden, in a moment, it becomes so clear that God is completely in control in this storm. This storm doesn't overwhelm him. So Elisha doesn't have to be afraid. He can be thankful even in this circumstance because God is greater than his circumstance. He belongs to God and God will take care of him. One more story. Matthew chapter 14. You can't talk about the storm without talking about the storm, can you? This story, I think maybe more than all the rest of them, paints this picture the most clearly. And you're like, Darren, we get it already. I don't care, we're going to do one more. You got to get this. You gotta, it has to be so deep within your bones. Why? Because the storm is coming for you and for me. And when it does, we need to fall back on this hope. It's coming. This storm, all right, sum up all of chapter 14 in two minutes. Here we go. 
Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. He has revealed himself as divine. He has done the most miraculous thing these disciples have ever seen. He took this little tiny portion of food and fed thousands of people. It is jaw-dropping to the disciples. And he says to them, you are going to head back across the lake. I'm going to dismiss everyone. I'm going to go pray. I'll meet with you later. So the disciples get ready and they head out on their boat. And Jesus heads off to the mountain. He goes to pray. And then in the middle of the night, he heads out to the disciples. Immediately, so I'm going to read at verse 22 and I'm going to catch up to 29, which is on the screen. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to go pray. When evening came, he was there all alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, this is three o'clock in the morning, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately, verse 27, Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. Hear those words again. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 28, Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus said, what did he say? He said, come. Come on out into the storm. Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water. Remember, the wind is beating against this boat. They've made no progress all night. Peter is walking on the storm, looking at Jesus, moving across the top of the water. This is a supernatural event. This is a terrifying event. And he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. He didn't take one step or two, he made some distance. If he starts to go down, there's no boat to grab onto anymore. He's out there, and he's got right up to Jesus. Within reaching distance of him, he's right up to Jesus. What does verse 30 say? When he saw the wind and the waves, he was afraid. His gaze moves away from Jesus. His gaze becomes fixed on the situation, the circumstances, and all of a sudden, he's afraid. He began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, and what did he say to Peter? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. They hop in the boat, the wind stops instantly, and they're worshipping him. Truly, you are God's Son. 
When I read this story, what stands out to me so clearly is that when his eyes were fixed on Jesus, when he didn't know what to do, but his eyes were on Jesus, when God gave him the eyes to see Jesus instead of the storm, he is supernaturally walking on water. The storm isn't touching him. Something is going on there where his gaze breaks. And all of a sudden, he's looking at the circumstances around him. All of a sudden, he's like Elisha's servant, staring at the army. And he panics and he drops. And he's in the water reaching out for help. And Jesus says to him, where was your faith? One second we were standing on the water, where was your faith? Because the second they step into the boat, storm stops. And everyone is worshiping him. He is divine. He is God. The storm in your life and the storm in my life, it may look different. The storm in the life of the Colossian believers, that's a whole different world than the world we're living in. You're going to see in chapter 2 some of the false teaching that was crashing against this church. And their salvation, their belief in God is on the line as this false teaching is crashing against that spiritual house that they've built. And you're going to find out whether or not they've built a firm enough foundation to stand the test. But when these other people encountered the storms in their life, their eyes were either on the right place or their eyes were on the wrong place. We've gone through a lot in the past few years as a church family. What are our eyes on? You and your own personal family. You might be going through storms right now that we don't even know about. What are your eyes on? God, why don't you just change my circumstances to make me happy? Why don't you just step in when it'd be so easy for you to snap your fingers and make the storm go away? Why don't you just calm the storm? What if Jesus doesn't want to calm the storm in your life? What if he wants to do something else? What if he wants to call you out onto the water? Maybe you've been praying for years and years that God will calm the storm. Whatever it is, your family, work, your life, your friends, whatever it is, you're just praying, God, calm this storm. And God says, come on out. Let's walk on top of this storm. Come here. Where's your hope? All of this coming back to Colossians, where is your hope? If your hope is in yourself, then if the storm is greater than you, your hope crumbles. If your hope is found in the fact that you are in Jesus and Jesus is in you and Jesus has filled you and that's the assurance of your hope and glory one day, then friends, you can walk on these storms without fear because Satan may take away all these other things. but he can't take away the hope of Jesus, which is Christ in you. That's a seal that will guarantee your inheritance. 
and he is not taking away. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. Nothing. 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 That one hit me this week. That's a tough word. But I think that's an uplifting word. So do you know what? Bring on a storm. Bring it on. I'm not going to pray that God takes the storms away. God, teach me. Teach me patience. Develop in me perseverance. If another storm comes, then another storm comes. And when I don't know what to do, I'm going to keep my eyes on you. The prayer of a prisoner for his church far away, Paul writing to the Colossians. Happy Thanksgiving, hey? If I told you just to be thankful for all this peripheral stuff, we are thankful for a lot of this peripheral stuff. But if that's where our thankfulness was all based on, then boy, the second it's gone, this would be an awful awkward church service, wouldn't it? Thankful for the weather outside. What happens when the weather changes? Thankful for this situation, this. My my job, what happens when it's gone? Thankful for security, what happens when it's not there? Thankful for, be thankful for the one thing that can never be taken away. We're gonna call the worship team up. They're gonna lead us in some more singing. I wanna pray for us as a family before we sing again, just to center our hearts and to center mind before we sing. Heavenly Father, Father, I trust you. I trust that you are the powerful one, that you are the holy one, that you are the mighty one who has seen every day written in your book of my life and our lives. I trust that you've seen every storm that this church family is going to ever face. Every storm that I'm ever going to face, you have seen it. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will develop in me a mature faith that relies and trusts on you in every storm. So that when the waves crash against me and my family, when the waves crash against Bridgeway and against us as a group, when Satan comes after all the things that mean so much to us, our hope won't be in those things. We will be able to say with confidence, God gives to us, God takes away from us. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Please stand with us again.
Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gift of salvation that you've given to us through your son, Christ Jesus, on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that we can confess our sin to you, and if we bring our confession to Lord Jesus, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and extend to us righteousness. You are the one who transforms hearts. You are the ones who calls us home. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for this family that you've called home. Lord Jesus, I pray for them that you would develop in them maturity in their faith. Not thin, flimsy faith. Rock-solid faith that doesn't move, doesn't waver. And Lord Jesus, would you draw them back to every reason why they have to be thankful today. Would the Psalms, Lord Jesus, be the cry of our heart. You are the powerful one. You are the fortress. You are the maker of heaven and earth. You are the mighty one upon the throne. Lord Jesus, dismiss this church family with your blessing and make them salt and make them light to this world to show this world what it means to be thankful and where we find our hope. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of these things. And thank you for the chance to spend time worshiping you and bringing you glory this morning. We pray this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.